Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, 2 Kings chapter 17 through 25. So we're ending this long period of history. It is about history. There's a lot of history here. Yeah, we're going to cover some of the most critical years. And I know we say that all the time, but in this case, it, yeah. it really is some of the most critical period for both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. So Israel, the 10 tribes, are going to get carried away captive, and the Southern tribes are going to get carried away captive in this particular uh, section of scriptures that we're covering. That's a lot of years. Of, of history, and all of it has direct implication and meaning for us today, because that's all about the scattering of the house of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel, the ten tribes up north, and if you're from any of the tribes beside Judah or Benjamin, then this northern tribe uh, loss is family history for you. and. The fascinating thing is, is that the southern two tribes, even though they got carried away captive, they're going to come back in, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll get, we'll get that history next week. Um, and then they're going to be scattered again by the Romans after Jesus' ministry. So in 70, about 36 years uh, after Jesus' crucifixion, they're going to get carried away captive as well. Um, there, that tribe isn't quite as lost and hasn't been through the years, the tribe of Judah, as the ten tribes. And so we, we can't talk about the scattering of the house of Israel without, I think, beginning with the end in mind, which is the gathering effort that we're involved in today as kind of this opening launch point of this story. It's the point of the restoration, is to fix or to conclude what happened in these chapters is to bring everybody back home. And President Nelson has been made this very clear. Yeah, speaking of the gathering, he says it's the most important thing taking place on earth today. That's a bold statement. The most important thing taking place on earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude, nothing else compares in importance, nothing else compares in majesty. And if you choose to, if you want to, you can be a big part of it. And something else that President Nelson said is he gave us the formula for, okay, so how do I gather Israel? What does that look like? He says, anytime you do anything that helps anyone on either side of the veil take a step toward making covenants with God and receiving their essential baptismal and temple ordinances, you are helping to gather Israel. It is as simple as that. So on that foundation point, beginning, let's dive in and see how Israel got scattered to begin with. We start in chapter 17. So just as a very, very quick review, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, after they've divided off, that's the ten tribes up north. Sometimes it's also been referred to in scriptures as Samaria, and when we get into the book of Isaiah, you're even going to hear it referred to on occasion as Ephraim 
that referring to the whole group up here in the north. Uh, down south, kingdom of Judah, and above Ephraim you get Syria, and further up to the northeast you get Assyria, which is going to come into the story here um, in, in the beginning of chapter 17. Um, something we've talked about repeatedly this Old Testament year is the importance of God providing a land for his covenant people in that relationship with him comes a place to prosper and to spread spread the, the goodness through your posterity. But we have this repeat problem that's been coming up. This is a really helpful map, and let's give you the literary structure of the Bible again for how it fits into this. So you have the Torah, the five books of Moses, that's the covenantal instruction of how to live faithfully to God in the promised land. In the beginning with Joshua and then concluding with 2 Kings, these are historical books written, actually compilations composed by inspired editors. Imagine Mormon in the Book of Mormon, that's an analogy, where he's collecting all these historical records of how the Book of Mormon people were faithful to God or not and what the consequences were. We have something very similar happening in these books that we're now concluding today in this lesson, where these inspired editors are helping us to see how well did the people of God live the instructions that they were given in the Law of Moses, in the books of Moses. And there's a couple of things you'll be looking for. You'll notice that, that these writers, once we start getting kings in the mix, not just judges as you had earlier, that you'll have phrases like, the king made Israel to sin. And the point here is that Jeroboam, who broke the kingdom into two pieces and built two false worship centers, one at Bethel, one at Dan, and he built those golden calves, and he told everybody, these be the gods that saved you from Egypt. And for all of the northern kingdoms, several hundred years of history, no king in northern Israel took the time to fix that egregious apostasy. And the king's role is to model and to teach people how to live in covenantal faithfulness. Now, this is where Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20 come into play. God establishes what he expects from a covenantally loyal king. And what God expects are several things. First, don't seek after a lot of silver and gold. That's God's job. He'll provide you that. Don't seek after a lot of horses. Um, it's like you don't need to raise a military. God is the, the Lord of hosts. Don't take the people back into Egypt, meaning don't lead them back into apostasy. Don't seek after many wives and concubines. What should the king be doing? He should be preserving God's covenantal instructions, the scriptures, reading them every day, and sharing them with everybody. And we see this pattern happening in interesting ways in the Book of Mormon, where good kings preserve the scriptures and share them. Bad kings, like King Noah, don't, and they have to have a prophet like Abinadi teach people, here's what Moses taught you to live. So as you're reading through here the second kings, this several hundred uh, years of history, you've been looking for these themes, 
How well did the kings lead the people to be righteous, meaning covenantly loyal to God? Now, God ultimately punishes people or allows them to suffer the consequences of their own choices. The way that these editors often mention it is that the kings lead out in apostasy and the people choose to live these essentially unfaithful lives to God. Now, why does this matter today? We've already talked about one reason. We're trying to gather these people, their descendants. Many of us are these descendants. This is part of bringing us back into God's fold. He has always been faithful to Abraham and his posterity. God wants us to be in covenant. We have to show our loyalty back. But the second thing that God is trying to show us with the preservation of the Bible and the Book of Mormon is the consequences of what happens when people are faithful or not. We can learn vicariously without having to have direct experience of being unfaithful to God of what happens when people are faithful or not. That's what I love about these scriptures. So there's lots of history here and it's easy to get lost in the weeds, lost in the weeds of all the names and all the different events. They're interesting and important, but this overall structure is that we're in the gathering time today to rebring everybody back into covenant with God and we can learn these lessons. Will we be faithful to what God has revealed to his chosen prophets, particularly modern-day prophets? Okay, so let's dive in. 2 Kings chapter 17 begins by telling you that in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. So you now just got a timestamp of who's the king in the kingdom of Judah, who's the king in the kingdom of Israel up north. And what do you find out about that king up north? Verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. So it's almost as if to say, well, he's he's bad, but at least he's not as bad as the previous ones. Um, so he's covenantally unfaithful, but he wasn't 100% covenant, covenantally unfaithful. It's like he just got away with too many things that he shouldn't have. So they've been they've been struggling up north. They've never had a, a king, according to our biblical writers and editors, who was righteous or who did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so it seems to be degrees of badness is what we're dealing with, with the kings up north. Yeah, it's interesting. Every king in the north, from Jeroboam down to the last, when the destruction happens and the ten tribes are taken into captivity, every king is labeled as being wicked and unfaithful. And in the south, most are labeled as wicked and unfaithful, and only a few are listed as that's righteous. That's correct. So maybe that's why they were allowed to last for an additional uh, 130, 140 years before they were carried away captive. So now you get the introduction of Assyria in verse 3. So Assyria is coming to town, and by the way, these particular stories, they're going to come back when we cover uh, Isaiah. We're going to get the story from the perspective of Isaiah, this, this court, courtly prophet who's living in Jerusalem at the time when all of this um, um, history is unfolding in the northern kingdom and eventually coming down into the southern kingdom as well. So Assyria comes to town and he finds out that Hoshea has been conspiring with the king of Egypt and he hasn't been paying <clears throat> his, his tax to the king of Assyria and that 
makes him pretty upset, so he comes and he sieges the land, besieged it for three years in verse 5. And by the way, you'll notice how quickly we work through these, these lessons of covering multiple years at a time. He besieged the, the, the land of Samaria for three years, and we think, oh, that, that took us maybe a few seconds to read. Three years is a long time, and here are these people who are under siege, surrounded by the, the most powerful army in the, the Eastern world at that time that we have record of. The, the Assyrians were brutal, by the way. Oh, they, were, they were some of the most um, uh, violent uh, warriors, and they were not nice to people when they captured them, and they used a lot of very, very brutal techniques to intimidate future cities and kingdoms that they were going to, to attack. They believed that if they could terrorize people into submission, it'd make it cheaper for them to control the land. And we'll see in a couple of lessons what happens when you have Cyrus from Persia saying, huh, what if I actually encourage people to worship their God and I will support them in that instead of terrorizing them with fear? And it, the Assyrians would conquer different places and literally just depopulate one area and move all those people to another, uh, another country and then take the people from that country and move them in, and that way they could try to control all the population. So when we talk about the latter days of like wars and rumors and wars, I would not want to have lived at this time of Israel. It's not like you can just, I don't know, call food delivery and say, hey, we're under siege, can you make your way through enemy lines and, and deliver pizza tonight? It's like you can't get out to your farms and whatever food you collect in the city, pretty soon you're running out and it's famine and you're looking at the consequences of broken covenants. God's letting you be taken into captivity. Yeah, so this, just for the timeline, so we're on the same page, Assyria first comes to, to begin this, this conquest of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, in 735, and then it's off and on. Their control and their power and their different efforts um, last up until 721, 720 BC when it's complete, when they, they're, they're going to finalize this scattering effort. Yeah, they finally conquer northern Israel in the capital city of Samaria. Yep, so in verse 6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So they take them, it's that fertile crescent, and Assyria is further to the, to the northeast in that crescent, and even further to the east is Media. And so you're scattering these Israelites from where they were in, in what is considered now as Israel today, from northern Israel, Galilee, and Samaria region, and now they're being taken out, and others are being brought in to this land, as Taylor mentioned. And these areas are where modern-day Iraq is today, uh, the Iranian plateau, so a very, very far distance. And it turns out, after these records are preserved here, we lose track of these ten tribes. That's why they're called the last tribes. If they ever kept records, we have not yet received them, and history doesn't, as far as we know, document what happens to these groups when they're put off into northern Iraq and um, Iran. Now, there's, there's an interesting 
side note here. Um, some of you are probably scratching your head right now, asking yourself the question, wait a minute, what about Lehi? What about the Book of Mormon group that left from the kingdom of Judah down south? He wasn't from the tribe of Judah, nor was he from the tribe of Benjamin. He was from the tribe of Manasseh. And if you look in 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 14 through 17, it says, For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And he ordained him priests for the high places and for the devil, uh, devils and for the calves which he had made. Now listen to this, verse 16. Think of Lehi's ancestor, whether it's his grandparent or great-grandparents, and after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, set, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So there's this group that, of all the tribes, some who actually believed these prophets, even though their kings weren't believing, the kings kept setting these up saying, no, you don't need to go to Jerusalem, don't go to the temple, don't worship God down there, here's the God who brought you through the Red Sea on dry ground, worship these, these idols. Well, there were some who didn't buy that king's message and came south and perhaps many of them stayed and now you get Lehi being in the kingdom of Judah and not carried away captive. So when we talk about the scattering, it's a, it's not a one-size-fits-all scattering because I think the Lehites, so the Nephites and the Lamanites, they would consider themselves a remnant of the house of Israel that had been scattered out to the isles of the sea. They see themselves as scattered Israelites, um, but they never consider themselves as lost because they know exactly where they are, and they've remembered God all along, at least the, the Nephite record, and then later on the Lamanites are brought back into that understanding. So, um, you get this, the those who had stayed, those are the ones who were taken away. What I love about this, Tyler, is that the Book of Mormon makes a very powerful and clear case that it emerges out of Jerusalem around 600 B.C. Now, if you're a 19th century farm kid trying to invent a book and you say, yeah, it's a group of people coming out of Jerusalem in 600 BC, you would expect to say Jewish people. So the fact that the Book of Mormon claims that these are from the tribe of Joseph, from Manasseh, it's very unusual because most of the people living in Jerusalem are from the tribe of Judah. And we have very few records, if any, the Book of Mormon is about the only one I can think of that actually shows that there were other people, we have these stray references in the Bible, that some people from the north, from the northern tribes, were living in Jerusalem. So it seems very likely that Lehi's grandparents or great-grandparents fled from the northern kingdom of Israel when they saw what was going to happen with the Assyrians. They wanted to worship the true God, they come to Jerusalem, and then their descendant, Lehi, leaves because he follows the Lord. So again, it's just more evidence that Joseph Smith was inspired by God to bring forth this ancient, authentic witness of Jesus Christ that truly is based on real people's lives that authentically were in Jerusalem and were from these other tribes. Very, very strong evidence that we can take the Book of Mormon seriously. Great insight, keeping in mind that 
the Assyrian conquest is 121 years before our Book of Mormon picks up in, in Jerusalem in 600 BC. So this is where we lose those northern tribes scattered and taken captive to the north. And you'll notice whenever the, the scriptures refer to the ten tribes, it always refers to them having been taken to the north. Because, once again, if you look at the wider Mediterranean region with the smaller view of those two countries, the Fertile Crescent, this, this Mesopotamian area, the, the Assyrians, they are carrying them to the north. Everything's to the north and the scattering is to the north. None of the scattering is to the south or to the east or to the west directly. This is, they, they don't, they don't travel this way. Yeah, it's a pretty serious they, volcanic desert out here. They follow the, the, the water. They follow the fertile ground, that fertile crescent. So it's always going to refer them as being scattered to the north. So these are the north countries. Exactly. And again, from there, as you were just showing with your hands, now we the don't Lord know where can they go. Keep taking them all kinds of different places, but remember, many people in in the latter days who have received their patriarchal blessings and had their lineage declared find that they're from Ephraim and Manasseh, and from some of these other tribes that were up north. You're not lost; you've been found, and if you've been found, then it's your responsibility to find others to bring back to gather back into this covenant connection with God, and let's see if we can do a better job at making and keeping that covenant with God and following and heeding the words of the prophets than maybe they did back in this day. Instead of having the scripture reading today be an experience where we just point a finger of scorn and judgment and condemnation at them in the past, perhaps we could hear their voice speaking to us out of the history book of their life and learn from those lessons so that we don't repeat them, so that we don't start to think we're smarter than the prophets or that we don't really need that covenant connection with God and that other things can actually save us in our time of need. Because if we go that route, it's just a matter of time before something will end up in a siege with us stuck in the middle, and it won't be an Assyrian army but it will be a serious problem for us. It'll be, it'll be something that, that gets us. Amen. So you'll notice the wording that these uh, scripture writers give us in verse 18, 19, 20. This, this is strong, strong language. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Jump down to verse 20, and the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hands of the spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. You catch all those verbs? These are verbs not of an angry God because he's, he's had his feelings hurt. These are covenantal words of a God who gave them an agreement, they agreed to it, and they broke it and he reestablished it, and they broke it, and he reestablished it, and they broke it, and he has been through this so many times with them, and finally it's a matter of, okay, we're going to put this on hold for you, and for generations we're going to, to let this scatter. 
So while they forgot who they were and they forgot who God was, God didn't forget who they were, and he's had his eye on them this whole time. And what's powerful here is that it wasn't simply God's agency to kick him out of the land. If you look forth or look back on verse 13, 14, and 15, the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways, keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the laws, all the covenantal instructions which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants to prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks, like to the neck of their fathers, and they did not believe in the Lord their God. They were not faithful. And then in verse 15, they rejected his statues and his covenants that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity or emptiness or useless things and became vain and went after the heathen and after that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So the way the agreement has worked out is God's like, I'm going to give you all these things, all the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all yours forever. All you need to do is be loyal to me. And if you're not, I have to execute the agreement, which is you can't be in the land and have all these great things. And the people rejected. They rejected him. So God was required to reject them. Now, he's rejecting them, but he's not rejecting the covenant. He's not rejecting their descendants, which is why today we have a restoration and God is doing his work. It's his ancient work. It's his eternal work to bring people back together. Some groups choose to not be part of it, but he's like, that doesn't stop me from continually offering my arms of, of love and grace and righteousness to everybody who wants to be with me. And this is a significant point to, to remember that from this point forward, we told you this is a significant set of chapters, from this point forward, all of God's work seems to be largely with the tribe of Judah and a little bit with Benjamin that kind of gets lumped in with Judah and a few of the tribe of Levi who are the priests. From the Bible perspective. From the biblical perspective. So then 700 years later, when the Savior comes on the scene, when he's born, all of his work is among the Jews, the tribe of Judah. His whole ministry is among the Jews, and he occasionally blesses Gentiles with miracles and some other interactions, but largely it's for the house of Israel. And it's at the Mount of Ascension as he's leaving that he tells them, now's the time. Go ye into all the worlds, preach the gospel to every creature. And so it was that opening up of that part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is this was never intended just to be about one family. It was always intended to be that one family is the servant that is going to carry my, my covenant, be the messenger of this covenant, which is a Christ-like symbol, to the whole world, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And yet that only saw a small, relatively um, compared to the latter days, small reach of what we're doing with the restoration of the gospel today. Now we're taking the gospel not just to the lost tribes of Israel, but to the Gentiles. And that's our message to everybody to come into the safety of this covenant connection with God. That phrase, the chosen, some people might think, oh, it must mean I'm really awesome. Well, you are. You're a child of God. 
But when you're part of this chosen covenantal group, you are chosen to be laboring in the kingdom of God, chosen to be at work, chosen to not be sitting on your laurels or anybody else's laurels from the past, but chosen to be up and about, spreading God's kingdom, doing goodness, and as President Nelson said, doing anything on either side of the veil to help more people come to Christ by making and keeping sacred covenants. It's really quite simple. I love the scriptures. I love the Bible. And sometimes we can just get lost in the details, like, I can't remember who all these people are. That's okay. If you can remember who God is, that's really the powerful starting point, because he always remembers who you are. That's it. Remember who, who the Lord is and who you are and who the people around you are, and start looking for the hand of the Lord in their lives as well as in your own life, and you're be going to be more, more apt to be able to help them make and keep those covenants. Amen. Now, you'll notice a really funny thing happened because the Assyrians remove these Israelites and bring in other people to live on this land, and then some lions come in and, and kill some people in verse 25 and 26, and, and notice their response. Now, we've talked about this before. In, in an Old Testament Mesopotamian context, they have everywhere you go, each part of the land, each tribe, each kingdom, each dynasty, each conglomerate of people that live there, they have their religious traditions, they have their gods of the land and their, their idols that they sacrifice to to try to please the gods for all the things that they need in order to feel like they're prospering. So these outsiders that they brought in, notice verse 26, it says, Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. They're like, they're, they're offering to their gods, but the God of this land must be different because they're getting consumed, some of them, by lions. He's mad. He must be sending lions to kill them. So, the king of Assyria knows how to fix this. Okay, we'll just go and grab some of the people, some of these priests that we've carried away, and have them come back in and teach these peoples, people how to worship the god of this land appropriately, and that'll solve our problem. Which, as you bring some of these people back in, and you have to, we, we would have to assume that maybe some of the, the sick and the afflicted, the really aged, never got carried away captive, and so they're stuck here. Others come in, they bring a couple back, and you get all this intermixing now. That is the beginnings of what 700 years later you're going to be introduced to in the New Testament as the Samaritans, who the Jewish people despise. And so Jesus, playing upon that bigotry, says, let me tell you about how to be faithful to God and love your neighbor. Look at this good Samaritan. And immediately the people are like, what? You can't you... use good and Samaritan in the same sentence. Exactly. There's a problem here. You got my interest. <laughs> and it's back to 700 years before that you have all this intermingling, and yet God can do his work. I just love that God has a way of doing his work, even if humans don't always know what they're up to. Absolutely. Now we get into chapter 18. Let's go down south to Hezekiah. 
King of Judah. He is now the king of Judah. Hezekiah is one of the the greatest kings in the history of, of the kingdom of Judah. He's really powerful and, and righteous, and you're going to see his example in the face of intense uh, opposition. You're going to see him repeatedly turning to the Lord and trusting the prophet, in his case, Isaiah, which, by the way, that had to be really a, a neat experience for Hezekiah to get to be the king with Isaiah as his court prophet. This was, a, this was a privilege for both Hezekiah and for Isaiah because in the Old Testament many times the prophets were like the least popular guy in the kingdom, and he would have to be on the run just to save his life, to keep running from the king who would always be trying to kill him up north or, or down south. In this case, it's kind of unique because Isaiah gets to be this court prophet with Hezekiah especially, where he gets great privileges living in the king's court and kind of as a, as a close, trusted advisor, counselor, and you're going to see this beautiful relationship between these two, the king and the prophet, as we move forward into this story. So we've been talking about all these, these rough experiences with, with wicked kings. Let's celebrate for a minute some of these good verbs associated with Hezekiah. He started his reign when he was 25 years old, and he's going to be the king for 29 years. Look what it says in verse 3, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Verse 6, he clave to the Lord, he departed not from following him, he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. Back to what Taylor began with, we keep going back to this Torah, he's keeping the commandments, he's not rewriting what Moses received from God. He's saying, that's what I'm going to do. And notice the response. Everything in verse 3 through 6 was what Hezekiah did with the help of the Lord. Look what the Lord does. Verse 7, and the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. <laughs> Basically saying, I'm not going to serve the Assyrian gods. I'm trusting that God as the Lord of hosts will protect me, as I am faithful to God, God will protect me from this onslaught of foreigners who want to impose their barbaric practices on us. So, here's the problem. The king of Assyria has wiped out multiple countries, multiple kingdoms, overthrown multiple gods and idols on his conquest, and he wiped out Syria, just to the north, he's wiped out Israel, and here's the question for you to ponder for a moment. If you, if you turn your life over to the devil, if you serve the devil, or you serve just the natural man tendencies that, that we all have in a fallen world, the question to consider is, when is enough enough? When do you arrive at that point where you say, okay, I don't need any more, whether it be money or fame or power or land or followers or conquests or any of the pleasures of life, if you turn your life over to the devil, when, when do you reach that saturation point where you say, I'm good, I'm going to stop there? The scriptures are full of examples of people who get so power-hungry in this case, they can't stop. 
they, they just keep going, trying to, to have more conquest, get more, 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 which is one of those interesting attributes of, of the mortal fallen condition is it doesn't come naturally to be content with what the Lord gives us. If we're not careful, we'll always be comparing ourselves to other kings around us and say, oh, I need more, or I need more power, or I need more money, more taxes, whatever it may be. And in this case, he didn't stop at the border of Israel and Judah. He kept going, and he ends up wiping out and sieging and taking out all of the cities. In the scriptures, you're going to see the phrase over and over again, the fenced cities of Israel and the fenced cities of Judah. That doesn't mean that they've got picket fences around them. That means these big, massive walls, usually. And one of the biggest cities down here, so Jerusalem's the capital, but one of the biggest cities here in the kingdom of Judah is Lachish. So here we go. We're, we're going to retell the taking of Samaria in verse 9 through 12, just so we get the context that's kind of getting back up to speed. We've lost the kingdom of Israel, and he keeps coming into the kingdom of Judah. And verse 13 tells you, in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib king of Assyria come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So, in verse 14 it tells us that he went to Lachish, and he Lachish is one of the biggest cities, a big stronghold in the kingdom of Judah, and it falls. And it's a sad day when you lose the light shining from Lachish. Archaeologists have spent considerable time here and have found so many like spearheads and arrowheads and like ballistic rocks that were used to be thrown at the walls to, to knock down the walls. I mean, it, this was clearly one of the worst destructions. And this is a very, very substantial city. And when this falls, everybody knows it. So you imagine the people in Jerusalem are now have shaky knees potentially. And it's interesting as we read Isaiah and the story of Hezekiah, how do people respond when death and mayhem seem to be right on their doorsteps? which is a really good lesson for us today as we maybe face some opposition and maybe you see some pillars of strength around you falling and struggling and under siege, and it can be intimidating. But I love these chapters because you'll notice you don't help people who are struggling under siege by throwing wide open the gates and inviting the enemy in and saying, okay, I surrender. That doesn't help anybody, much less you and your loved ones, to, to stay faith and firmly rooted in your covenantal connection with Christ is the only hope. Even if all of the other fenced cities around you are falling, you stay faithful. You stay true to those covenantal connections that you have with the Lord. So what happens is, is there's one city left in the entire kingdom that hasn't fallen, and it's Jerusalem. And now we've wiped out all these other cities in Judah, and so Sennacherib now turns his attention full force, let's go and siege the city of Jerusalem, and that's going to be the, the final city in Judah. And so he sends this servant, Rabshakeh, 
with some others to deliver his message. And boy, they, like we said before, the Assyrians, they taunt with terror, and they're going to be showing the conquests of the conquered peoples and what they've done to torture them, and they're trying to get these people so scared that they give up because of these threats. In fact, even Rab Shakeh, the messenger from the Assyrian king, speaks in Hebrew, not as in his own language, because he's trying to get all the people, all the defenders in the walls of the city of Jerusalem, to hear these menacing and terrifying words. And the, the men of Hezekiah, like the leaders, are like, we understand the Assyrian language. You can speak to us in your tongue, because <laughs> they're trying to keep the people from hearing these, like, terrible taunts. And how many of us, when we get verbally attacked by people who are not our friends, might feel discouraged? And that's why it's important we go to church, we read the scriptures and listen to the words of prophets, we hear the language of God instead of the language of the enemy that's lying to us or saying things to distract us from what's good, wholesome, and, and uh, beautiful. And part of their message is, you, you are all crazy for following Hezekiah, your king, who's promising you to be delivered by his God, and then they go through this long list. Look at verse 33. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, Iva? And he, they're listing all these different countries that, and kingdoms that they've wiped out, and they're like, where are their gods? They didn't save those people. Hmm. The, these uh, messengers are very, very unfamiliar with the Lord God of Israel, obviously. So watch Hezekiah's response. Chapter 19 is beautiful. It opens with verse 1. came to pass that when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went where? Into the house of the Lord. You'll notice things are heating up the siege is going to start, the people are starting to get really nervous, they're seeing what's happened everywhere else, they're saying, uh, what are we going to do? And he went to the temple to connect with, with God. Verse 2, he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos. So he goes to the temple and he sends messengers to the prophet we need every connecting point we can with the Lord here to know what to do. I love verse 6. And Isaiah said unto them, once he's gotten to the temple and he's in this, this, he's joined this meeting, thus shall ye say to your master, thus saith the Lord, be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, which, with which the servants of King Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land." That's not a lot of words, but boy, is there so much strength and optimism packed into just two verses. So he wrote that letter to, to Hezekiah, the, the messengers deliver it to Hezekiah, he gets the letter, he reads it, and he says, hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And then he went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Huh. 
that's a really, really interesting turn of events that God speaks to a prophet because you've humbled yourself and petitioned him for an answer, you've turned to the Lord for help, the Lord has poured out a direct message to his prophet, the prophet delivers the message to you, and then what do you do? You take that message to the temple, so to speak, to this sacred space, and you spread it before the Lord, and he says, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath uh, sent him to reproach the living God. And so he's taking this, this message to the Lord saying, what do I do? What a beautiful pattern that you, you get messages from, from the prophets, but you don't just stop there. You take it to the Lord and say, now what do I, how do I live this? How do I do this? Whether the prophets are the modern prophets or as you're reading scriptures, to take the, the written words of the Lord that have come to us through his, his mouthpieces, what a powerful thing to ask him for that guidance. So you'd think that God, who's the Lord of hosts, uh, would say, all right, I'm going to send this big, massive army, I'm going to send in reinforcements from Egypt, or there's a bunch of people out on the land that you didn't know about, they're going to come deliver you. Now, God could have done that, but God chose something a bit more powerful and memorable to impress upon the minds of his people that he has chosen his people and this city where his holy house is. If we look particularly at these verses, uh, 31, 32, 33, 34, uh, in particular, God says in verse 34, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, you might read this and kind of pass over it, there's some really important covenantal context going on here. If you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God makes an eternal covenant to David that there will always be a Davidic king to reign. And of course, we know the fulfillment of that is Jesus. And in that promise to David, God also said that he would protect Jerusalem. It's the holy city where the kingship is based. So you have the temple and the palace, or basically God's throne and the king's throne, all wrapped in this one city, and it's God's city. And so it's his job to defend the city as he claimed he would do for David. So obviously we all need to be doing things to trust God and to protect ourselves from any enemy force that's out there, emotional, physical, moral, whatever it might be. But this is interesting that God is essentially saying, I made a covenant, Hezekiah, to your forefather David to do this thing, and I will therefore do. And of course, what's the conclusion? You got these massive Assyrian armies surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Verse 35, it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, 
smote him with the sword, and they escaped in the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. So this fulfills the prophecy that Isaiah had made, that no arrow would be shot there, that the city would not be taken, and that Sennacherib would leave and he would die by the sword. All these things happen. Now, what I'm about to share is my personal opinion of how this connects to the Book of Mormon. You might remember Laman and Lemuel could not conceive that the great city Jerusalem could fall. Lehi was preaching that the city would fall. It turns out that there was a school of thought in Jerusalem at the time that because God had made this covenant to David and Davidic kings, that Jerusalem would never fall. As long as the temple is there, it could never fall, the city. As long as there's a Davidic king, the city could never fall. And the people became complacent in God's covenant, and they failed to realize their role in being faithful. They thought because God promised to protect them, they didn't have to do anything. And my view is that Laman and Lemuel were very comfortable in expecting God to simply take care of their salvation without them acting. And they, they would have seen Lehi as a political and a religious traitor to saying that Jerusalem could fall. That's as if saying that God cannot protect his people, his temple, his king. And so even 130 years after this time of Hezekiah, the spectacular victory that God makes, the memory of this would have been very fresh in the minds of people living in Jerusalem, so that when the Babylonians come and are now threatening Jerusalem, you had a lot of people saying, God saved us during the time of Hezekiah, he protected his city, there's no need to fear, and you had people like Lehi and Jeremiah saying, it's time to repent. And you had people saying, nope, we got it, God will take care of this. So I wonder if there's this kind of political or religious conflict going on between Lehi and his sons, Laman and Lemuel, who are, have false hope because they aren't being covenantally faithful. Which you get the reasons for the difference between what's happening with Hezekiah and Isaiah versus Lehi and Zedekiah later on. Your king went to the temple. Your king turned to the prophet and listened to him. Well, the kings aren't doing that in Judah 120 years later. They're doing quite the opposite. So let's bridge the gap here for a second between this story of Isaiah and Hezekiah, and how did we get here to where Laman and Lemuel can even have that argument with Father Lehi, potentially? Um, what's, what's changed? You'll notice it tells us in chapter um, 20, Hezekiah's life gets extended 15 years, it's preserved, and then starting in chapter 21, you get the next king, Manasseh. Um, he began to reign after Hezekiah, and he's only 12 years old. But look at verse 2. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So he turns back to the very same things that the northern kingdom had been doing and previous kings in the kingdom of Judah had been doing, totally rejects his dad, Hezekiah, and tradition has it that he's responsible for the death of Isaiah in, in, some, in some early traditions. He's building up the high places which his very father had destroyed, and things are going terrible. 
the Lord spake in verse 10? By his servants, the prophets. So multiple prophets are coming saying, no, 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 you, you, you know this isn't going to end well. Don't keep doing this. And What's interesting here is that Manasseh is doing so much evil to cause apostasy, and yet it's one of the most economically flourishing times in ancient Israel. So people living at this time are like, this is great. We're all making more money. We're getting more land. We're getting bigger vehicles. They didn't have cars, but <laughs> maybe in chariots. Like everybody is prospering, but not with God. And so many people are feeling like, hey, what's the problem here? Manasseh has helped us all to become really wealthy. Do we really need to be listening to these prophets? Because things to me seem to be going quite well by rejecting the truth that Hezekiah and Isaiah taught. So this is what happens. It's the pride cycle where people misinterpret the prosperity they have, and it can endure for some time, and they think, oh, my hand has done this, I don't need God anymore, and we're going to see this cycle return as Manasseh and others move on, that it will just cause enormous hardship for the kingdom. And so I think the invitation for all of us is that God wants to bless us with the good things of life, but we should never let those things be the symbol that God is with us in the sense that we have no need for him anymore in our lives, which is what Manasseh is doing, sadly. And then he dies in chapter 21, verse 18. Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. So let's see how Ammon does. Verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and verse 20 tells us, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. And he walked in all the way that his father walked in, served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and walked not in the way of the Lord. Was not walking the covenant path. So, ironically, his life doesn't uh, seem to, to be prolonged. The servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. And so that put his son, Josiah, onto the throne. But if you're doing the math, you realize Josiah couldn't be that old. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So you're seeing that we're taking these kings, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, we're getting really close now to Lehi's time period and Jeremiah's time period when you're going to be introduced eventually to Zedekiah as the king. Lehi may have been a young man when Josiah came to the throne, and so the, these two men overlapped in some way. So when Josiah comes into the throne at age eight, you have to know that he's got advisors, mentors, counselors who are helping him run the affairs of the kingdom, and gratefully, Hilkiah the high priest helps him with some things, and they, they go up to the temple and they start working on the temple and so, repairing it. So Josiah is about 26 when this happens, and it's a sign of piety and faithfulness for a king to build a temple or want to do it. Think of King David wanting to build the temple, then Solomon builds it, or to refurbish a temple. So we have Josiah taking the time to refurbish a temple. So this is what good kings do. They get people oriented to worshiping God in faith and faithfulness. And something significant happens, in fact, it's really deeply significant, as they're working on the repairs, 
Here's what happens in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, if one of your kids came out during family home evening and says, I found my scriptures, you might say, well, okay, big deal. Like, we got lots of extra copies. You can pull out an electronic device and probably get 100 different translations. It turns out, in the time of the ancient Israelites, we don't know how many books of the, uh, how many copies of the law of Moses were available. Now, definitely one had been put into a sacred location in the temple and forgotten. And forgotten. For how long? We don't know. And so it's interesting, if you think about this in context of the Book of Mormon, think about how crucial it was for, the, for Nephi to get the records so that people would know how to keep the commandments. And as we read this rest of this little story here, we will find that part of the reason that the people were so often off base is it seems that the book of the law, the record of the covenant instructions had been lost for possibly generations. How can you remind people of what God's covenant instructions are if the written text is gone and the prophets who don't have the modern day internet to record all their voices can't get out to everybody? So this is a really, really important story to understand why there was a religious reformation during the time of Josiah and how it wasn't sufficient for people to be protected because they didn't fully turn back to the Lord and they were thus taken into captivity into Babylonian captivity around 600 BC, just about 20 years later. Yeah, so that's an important concept to understand that we've, we've gone who knows how long without any access to the scriptures. As Taylor's pointing out, no printing press, no mass production of, of being able to produce books. If you, want, if you want the law, some scribe has to sit down and letter for letter copy it down by hand in some form or scratch it into metal like the brass plates or later on with Book of Mormon, the golden plates, because anything written on papyrus or vellum or any of their, their less than metal products or scratched into stone, it's not going to last. So we take for granted the fact that we have so much access to scripture, like Taylor was talking about. It's remarkable in the latter days. But to them, he found it, he has it read, he, you can picture this king just weeping over knowing, oh, that's what God wants us to do. So you'll notice that he commands the people to assemble and he reads to them and has read to them the law. Yeah. Just a little minor point here, Josiah has the book read to him first. Now remember, it's the covenantal instructions, especially for how a king is supposed to lead people. It may be that Josiah is illiterate, and notice he has the book read to the people. Well, partly because it's the fastest way to have everyone hear it, but again, we don't know what literacy rates are, but they may have been 5 or 10%. And it seems to suggest that the ability to write is a very precious skill in the ancient world, and Nephi knows how to write, and my, my opinion is that Laman and Lemuel are illiterate because there's times where they say, Nephi, explain the scriptures that you read to us. They, it never talks about Laman and Lemuel ever reading the scriptures except Nephi sharing it. So it just says something about the culture here that there wasn't apparently a literate culture, a, a pervasive literate culture where people had access to the written word of God. We have this enormous blessing today where we have this overabundance of the Word of God, to the point that some people say, a Bible, a Bible, I don't need any more Bible. Plenty of scriptures, right? And the people back then are like, we wish we would have had more, and we wish we would have known it and lived it. 
So from the biblical uh, editor's perspective back in this ancient day, look at verse 25 of chapter 23. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. So it kind speaking of, of Josiah. Sets, speaking of Josiah, it sets him in a pretty, pretty um, incredible position right before Lehi comes onto the scene. But the very next verse is interesting. You've often pointed out this word notwithstanding. Notwithstanding all the good that Josiah did to refurbish the temple, to read the covenant instructions to people and invite them into the covenant, in fact, in some ways, it's almost like a King Benjamin speech back there in chapter 2, Nephi, 2 Kings 22. Notwithstanding that, there was so much wickedness in the land that the Lord turned not from his fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. Just kind of sad that the people still, because of a bad king, could not fully overcome generations of habitual wickedness. So eventually we shift now to verse 36 uh, with Jehoiakim, who was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he gets 11 years on the throne in Jerusalem. Verse 37, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Here we go again. It's, it's this repeat story. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which is to the east, he comes and he's, he's got control over Jerusalem and they're supposed to be paying tribute and, and paying their, their taxes. They once again are looking to Egypt to help deliver them. Egypt is kind of this, this old dynasty that doesn't have the power that they used to back in the day, but you'll notice the kingdom of Judah is looking for help in Egypt. They're looking down to Egypt rather than up to God. Like Hezekiah had done during the time of Isaiah where he had turned to God when the Assyrians had been threatening. Now the Babylonians who'd overthrown the Assyrians now we're wanting to take over all these lands the Assyrians used to own and extract all the resources. So what, what's going to end up happening is Nebuchadnezzar comes in chapter 24, verse 10, and you get the first wave of conquest. So the first group now gets removed. This is about 597. So Lehi's only been gone three years, when you get that first wave of people removed out to Babylon, including the king. The Je king, the leaders, the wealthy people, the merchants. Lehi definitely would have been taken into Babylonian captivity had he stuck around. Exactly, and so would Ishmael, and probably Zoram, and Laban, quite frankly. Look at verse 17, the king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. There you're introduced to that king that opens up the Book of Mormon in those first few verses where it tells that they're from Jerusalem in the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. It's this Zedekiah who is also the father of Mulek or the Mulekites that are going to meet 
the people of King Mosiah I when he comes down into the land of Zarahemla from the land of Nephi in roughly 200 BC. So all of these stories should start to be connecting for us. So the timing, the calendars, our, our, our way of reckoning time, it's a little tricky to know exactly how it lines up with our current Gregorian calendar looking back into this BC time period. What we know is the Book of Mormon opens with Lehi in Jerusalem during the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, who is put on the throne as kind of a puppet king by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, after he's taken out that first wave of people. And you'd think that people want to listen, like, huh, we've lost a lot of people, maybe we should listen to the prophets and things will go better, and like, no, nothing bad can happen to Jerusalem. Wait, have you guys just missed what's been going on recently? It's amazing as humans how easily we can get distracted with the mundane things of the world, or whatever it might be, and miss the clear call to trust God so that he can save us. So Zedekiah is 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So you'll notice Jerusalem falls to Babylon, ultimately the, the final siege from Babylon really kicks in in 587 and finalizes in 586 BC when they're destroyed, and 586 is when he's carried captive into Babylon. That's interesting because he started when he was 21, he reigns for it's in his 11th year, so he's 31 or 32 when he's carried captive and all of his children are killed. But there's one that isn't mentioned here in the Bible that we get in that Book of Mormon. Mulek, one of the children who apparently was carried away safely and brought over to the Americas. So the Hebrew word for king is Melech. So Zedekiah is the king. One of his sons would be you're going to become the next king. So what might you call a young king? You might call them a, a mulek, a little king. So it's interesting that Zedekiah's son's name is mulek, which means little king. He may have been eight, nine, ten, uh, maybe just a, a young teenager when mulek was able to get out of Jerusalem and make his way over to the New World. So all these interesting tantalizing connections with the end of the historical narratives of the Bible to the Book of Mormon. And to kind of bring it together, these Bible writers are helping us to see patterns in history, that God gave covenants, he wants us to be in covenant with them, what happens when people are unfaithful. Notice that after 400 years, all the, most of the people are taken into captivity because of faithlessness. So Nephi's party leaves. The first thing they do is make sure they have a copy of the covenantal instructions, the, the, the law of Moses, and then you have another thousand years with a final couple of faithful editors, Mormon Moroni, who then compile this record to explain, yet again, here's what happens to God's people when they choose to be faithless or faithful. So really, that's what's going on. And I see Nephi leaving at this time and realizing, wow, how do we reset God's covenant in this new land and not fall into these bad patterns of faithlessness that we saw so often in the history of our own people. And I think that's what's motivating Nephi to want to teach his brothers and his posterity, let's be faithful to the Lord. I have lived in an environment where I've seen through history generations of faithlessness and it was a disaster. Let's not repeat that. And sadly, he had a vision 
of what was going to happen to his own people when they had finally chosen to completely disavow God and choose to worship the arm of flesh. And what a blessing that we have all these scriptures to testify of God, of his power, his goodness, his kindness to his children on both sides of the veil. I love that perspective that President Nelson has, has emphasized for the church, that our work isn't just on this side of the veil among the living, but it's on both sides of the veil, and anytime we do anything to help anyone make and keep those sacred covenants with the Lord, to enter in and keep those connecting covenants through the ordinances that he has provided, we are gathering Israel. There truly is no greater work happening on the face of this earth, and what a privilege it is to be able to spend this time with you and, and with our families studying these scriptures and trying to figure out our place in this big narrative that is being written to this day in this unfolding restoration with ongoing revelation to help us find and discover our place in this, this beautiful Latter-day effort that we were uh, privileged to come to the earth at this time with these resources to be able to participate in this work as a collective group. May the Lord be praised forever for his, for his goodness in giving us these opportunities, and we know he lives, and we know he'll help us in this effort, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.